All right, so good evening. It's good to be back. Just uh, I'll send an email just to make sure everybody knows. So next week is Divrei Hayamim already, the Book of Chronicles, and then two weeks following is the is the goodbye, the goodbye once and for all. And in the middle week, May seventeenth is is we will not be meeting them. But I'll send an email regarding those three dates because as busy as we all are, I know how easy it is to get confused. But we will we will make sure that everybody knows the right dates. Ezra Nehemiah for me is a nostalgic moment just because it's the very first course that I ever taught at Yeshiva University. Spring of 1996, they called me up a couple weeks before the course started and they said, how would you like to come teach here? And I'm like, sure, this sounds like a great opportunity, you got to do it. And so I got to learn Ezra Nehemiah on the fly. So I didn't know it at all, but it was, it was, it was really a great experience. And so whenever I flip back to it, it's a nostalgic moment for me. It's a very exciting book. One thing that I'm going to forget to say later, so I'm going to say it now. It's the last chronological book of Tanakh, meaning the book of Chronicles that is positioned geographically after it in terms of when, in our standard printed editions. That occurred before the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. They flip-flopped it around. I'm guessing that at least some of that has to do with that Chronicles ends on a very happy note, whereas Ezra and Nehemiah ends up on a particularly unhappy note. So we're just too optimistic of a people. We can't possibly end up on a sour note. The last chapter is Nehemiah chapter 13. There's no way that the organizers of our Bible are going to end up with a bleak chapter where people are breaking Shabbat and intermarrying and Nehemiah is busy beating them up, trying to whip them into shape almost literally. The Tanakh doesn't end on things like that. So they rearranged it a little bit by getting the book of Chronicles after it. And we'll, we'll hear more about Chronicles next week. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah is set... There's actually two different eras that are covered here. It's the beginning of the Second Temple period, where the first six chapters are from 538 to 520, no, 516 BCE. And the first temple was destroyed in 586, big hiatus over here, and now we're going to march into the Second Temple period, and by the end of chapter 6, the Second Temple is standing. It's pretty cool. Then there's a hiatus. Chapter 7 begins about 458 BCE, or 58 years after the previous verse, and it goes, then the rest of Ezra and Nehemiah goes from 458 to 432, 433 or so, and that's the end of the biblical period as we know it. I get excited about this book for a whole pile of reasons. One of them is that the people are by and large really good until the stuff that I mentioned before, Beverly. Sorry, one quick question. Is it two books or one book? It's one book. Okay. That settles it. Yeah, we, 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 we have a bunch of fictions in our tradition. This isn't even our tradition. I was, I was going to mention something later, but since you're raising it now, no, I call it Ezra Nehemiah. It's one book. It's the book of Ezra Nehemiah. The Talmud actually just calls it the book of Ezra. Nehemiah doesn't have any role in the name. What happened is that already, they sound like two different books. It's, it's not crazy to imagine that the, there were different authors and that a later editor put them together. But tradition sees it as one book which has ramifications on how you learn it, and that's why it's in one week of the survey course. And it's not just, a, oh my goodness, we're running out of time. Two years ago, I knew that this was going to be this week because it's one book and I needed to make that point just by having it all in one thing, even though now we have to rush because we have 23 chapters instead of 10 and then 13 over a two-week period. Oh, well. But in the meantime, the first period is 538 to 516 BCE. And the second period is 458 to 432 or 433 or so BCE. We've talked about it so many times that it's old hat for us now that when the first temple was destroyed, that was the darkest moment in the biblical period by far. And as far as the people of Israel were concerned, that was it. It was over. 
It was only the prophet Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, or Yechezkel, living in Israel and Babylonia respectively, who gave a prophetic vision that tried to encourage people to look beyond the misery of now, where things really looked over, and to look beyond that. And the celebrated prophecies of Jeremiah in sources 1 and 2 is that two things will happen in 70 years from the year 605. 605 was the year that the Neo-Babylonian Empire came into existence with Nebuchadnezzar at its head. This whole land shall be a desolate ruin, referring to Babylonia, and these, excuse me, the land of Israel, and those nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. He goes on to say that after 70 years, Babylonia will fall. Then source two, for thus said the Lord, when Babylon, when Babylon 70 years are over, I will take note of you and I will fulfill to you my promise of favor to bring you back to this place. So Jeremiah predicts two cataclysmic events for 70 years down the line. One is that Babylonia will fall. The mighty and seemingly invincible Babylonia will fall. And the other one is that the Jews will be allowed to return to their land, neither of which seemed remotely possible when Jeremiah was saying these things. It never looked like the Babylonians were going to go anywhere. And it didn't... Huh? He's saying them as the Babylonian Empire is rising. So that, it looked like that was it. It really looked like this was the end for everybody. And once the destruction came, that was really going to be all. And then miracles of history happened. 550 BCE, ballpark, is when Cyrus of Persia rebelled against the Babylonian Empire, and the Babylonians rolled in to crush him like a bug, like you do with any rebel. And shockingly, Cyrus beat them. Well, since Cyrus won on the homeland, you might as well go out there and see if you can conquer the whole empire. That's what I would do. And, and so, lo and behold, he rolls out his troops, and the Babylonian Empire collapses. The world is shocked. Nobody thought that this was at all possible. And suddenly, within 10 years, the entire Babylonian Empire is shattered. Country by country falls. Immediately, the Babylonians are totally on the retreat until finally, in 539 BCE, Cyrus takes the Persian army and marches against the city of Babylonia. It took 11 years to get the whole schmear. And the Babylonian defenders are there and hunkered in, ready to go. And when Cyrus arrives with his army, they open up the gates of Babylonia and say, welcome to our new king. No fight. And that was it. The Babylonian Empire was done, and now it's a Persian Empire. It was a shocking series of events, again, all within 11 years, that Babylonia went from controlling the ancient Near East in a very big way to suddenly being done. Babylonians, The city of Babylonia was now Persian. The whole Persian Empire was now Persian. And Cyrus immediately fulfilled prediction number one, that Babylonia would fall in 70 years. If you're a math major... The distance between 605 and 538 is actually 67 years, not 70. But that's okay. Biblically speaking, when you say 70 years, that's a lifetime, it's a, it's a full generation. It certainly qualifies if it fell within 67 years. But then, perhaps even more shockingly, is how the book of Ezra opens up in source 3. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, when the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah was fulfilled. So the author wastes no time giving a thank you note to the prophet Jeremiah saying, wow, his prophecies are being fulfilled. The Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia to issue a proclamation throughout his realm by word of mouth and in writing as follows. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me with building him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And suddenly, by the word of God, no less, gives the Jews permission to return to the land of Israel, build the temple, And he says, you have a choice, Jews. You don't even have to go. I'm not forcing you to go. He was really benign. He said, any Jew who wants to go may. And any Jew who remains outside of the land better write a check. 
But everybody's got to support the building project. We want the Jews to have their temple in Jerusalem once again. It's an amazing phenomenon. And again, the two miracles of history that you could see the prophet Jeremiah smiling in his grave. Here he predicted 70 years ago and everybody thought he was a nut. Big time, they thought he was a nut. They really persecuted him so much. And here he is finally vindicated. That 70 years later, almost to the dot, exactly the way biblically speaking we would say it, two great miracles have occurred. And, but wait, yeah. Okay, but wait, yeah. You used interchangeably for the city and the, the empire of Babylonia. I mean, is the city itself the same name as the... Yeah, it's the, ca- the capital city of the empire. The Babylonian Empire was ruled from Babylonia. Correct. In other words, that's their form of the Acropolis. Correct. Correct. That was their homeland. So good. Not only are the Jews allowed to return and rebuild the temple, but they're headed by the two people who you and I would want as the leaders. It says here in Source 4, These are the people of the province who came up from among the captive exiles whom King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had carried into exile to Babylon, who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, east to his own city, who came with Zerubbabel and Yehoshua. Quick background of Zerubbabel and Yehoshua. Zerubbabel is a grandson or great-grandson of King Yehoiachin. He's from the King David line. And here he is at the head of the community, running the show. He's going to become the governor of the Judean province of the Persian Empire. And there's a lot of high hopes for him that one day maybe he'll become the king, which after all, we're all waiting for here. There should be redemption with the Davidic king. So he's the right man to be in charge on the political sphere. Yoshua is the high priest figure. He's the grandson of the high priest at the time of the destruction of the temple. The grandfather was murdered, along with many others, as the Babylonians destroyed the city. But here's his very grandson coming back and leading the returnees two generations later to rebuild. So these two people throughout the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, throughout Haggai and Zechariah, who we've already discussed, are incredibly righteous, faithful. They're exactly the people you want to be leading the people. It's a perfect, perfect union coming up. And then the whole chapter is very long after that. In fact, you can see that the next verse in the source sheet is verse 64, right? It's still in source number four over here. I dot, dot, dotted all it out. All the rest of it is, is a list. From this town, there were 206. And from this family, there were 516. And from that city over there, there were 1,204, whatever it is. There's a whole roster of, of the returnees in detail where they are originate from, whether from families or whether from the cities that they were from in Israel back in the day. And the sum of the entire community was 42,360. So when you read the chapter, it sounds overwhelming. Wow, look at all the people, throngs of people. In fact, throngs of verses. Everybody's coming back. It really feels good. Although when you read the book of Esther, you don't feel that a single Jew lives in the land of Israel, even though that's after what we're reading now. So the impression that you get just reading the book of Ezra is that everybody's coming back. Whereas the impression that you get reading everything is this is a tiny percentage of the Jewish population. Most Jews chose to remain in Babylonia slash Persia, so much so that this community over here in Israel was an, was an outpost. It wasn't even the hub of the Jewish world. Right? We think of Shushan as the hub of the Jewish world during the Purim story. We imagine Mordechai is there and most of the Jewish people live there. They're at the center of power in the Persian Empire. They're not back in Israel at all. But you would never get that impression reading Ezra chapter 2. Here it's all celebratory. Everybody's coming back, city by city, family by family. And then no sooner do they get there that... Oh, are yours also not double-sided? It's not double-sided. Okay, got it, okay. 
Sorry, sorry for the unnecessary waste of paper. Okay, I just I just discovered that. I'm like, wait a minute, where is this? I'm, mi- I'm missing half the stuff. That's why it's so thick. Okay, so this this explains many things. I'll have to speak to them about double siding. So usually they are double sided. Maybe a different person did it this. Huh? Anyway, little little things. So as soon as they get there, they immediately start to build because after all, that's what they're here for. They start building the temple. You don't start with the temple, you start with the altar so that way you can start getting ready for action. They start laying the foundation for the temple. There's a ton of enthusiasm. They're raring to go. And then you have one of those great cacophonies in all of the Bible in source number five over here. You have some old timers. Many of the priests and Levites and the chiefs of the clans, the old men who had seen the first house, meaning the first temple, that is, right, wept loudly at the sight of the founding of this house. Many others shouted joyously at the top of their voices. So you imagine, the people who remember the good old days, they know very, very well that there is no way ever that the second temple is going to resemble that of King Solomon. How? Where's the money going to come from? And the, the expense that King Solomon was able to, to use on the first temple was limitless. These people are a tiny percentage of the population, and even if everybody writes a check, seriously, the, the entire Jewish world can't possibly match King Solomon. King Solomon's reign was so wealthy, and money was coming in from trade, from King David's wars. There was so much surplus. There was, there was no way that the community could afford to build a second temple anywhere near the first, and they knew it. So they're crying. Whereas the new generation, they don't have any pictures, right? They don't remember anything. For them, it's just all good. We have no temple, and now we're going to build a temple. So what if it's smaller or less lavish or whatever it's going to be? This is fantastic. So poetically, the verses say in 13 over here, the people could not distinguish the shouts of joy from the people's weeping. For the people raised a great shout, the sound of which could be heard from afar. So on on a physical level, the old-timers realize they're never going to match the first temple, and they're basically correct until King Herod, many centuries later, who also had a lot of money to spare, the second temple was nothing like the first. There there simply was no possible way of doing that. Were the measurements and all of that the same? Presumably, but don't know. There's no description whatsoever of the details, which makes one think... Hopefully they had some kind of plan and were able to more or less reconstruct what had been there, albeit with lesser materials and certainly less lavishness all around. But at least the dimensions should be the same. Yes, Susan? So um, the, the detailed descriptions in the in Torah of how the temple was built with all the jewels and the gold, that referred to the first temple? That referred to the tabernacle. That was the portable, portable shrine. In the book of Kings, you have a detailed account of King Solomon's temple. So that's where you'll find the first temple description. So since there's no description here, it's suggested that, okay, they probably just more or less followed whatever script or blueprints they had in their archives that they would be able to rebuild to the best of their ability. Huh? Correct. You would still have old-timers with living memories. But you would need more than memories, but yeah, for sure. But for sure. Now, the Talmud realizes that there's something much more fundamental to cry about than... The old-timers were crying about the fact that it would never be as pretty, which it would not. But, but the Talmud is crying about something much more fundamental. And they say this in source number six. In five things, the first sanctuary differed from the second. And it has nothing to do with how much gold there is. The ark, the ark cover and the cruvium, the fire, meaning the fire that miraculously came from heaven, the Shekhinah, God's presence, and the Holy Spirit of prophecy, and the Urim Vitumim, which is the mysterious oracle that the high priest wore. If you know how to count to five, how many lists, how many things are on this list? 
There are seven things on this list. So the Talmud knows how to count to five also. Even though it says there are five things that are different, the first three items are one, right? The ark, the ark cover, and the kruvim, that's, that's the ark. Right? That's a unit. So that's one. And okay, now that you got rid of that, there's a total of five. So that's how they're, that's how they're counting this. I don't know why the English puts commas there, because then it gets really weird. But anyway, those are the five things. These five things are not just five items that are missing. This is what makes the temple the temple. Right? The ark isn't just a part of the temple that they couldn't recover. The ark is why you have a temple. That's what's sitting in the Holy of Holies. That's God's throne room and God's footstool. Without that, it's an empty room. The Holy of Holies is an empty room. And if God's presence is not palpably felt, however that works, some kind of cloud of glory situation, the way that it is described in the Torah for the tabernacle and the way that it is also described in the Book of Kings for the first temple, if that's not there, well... That's why you have a temple, right? To interact with God, whatever that means. Same thing with prophecy, same thing with the oracle that the high priest used. These are the reason why you have a temple. So this has nothing to do with the price tag of the, of the, of the gold and silver and cedar wood and all that kind of stuff. This has to do with the second temple was really just a, a shell of what a temple is supposed to be. So that's something to really cry about. And biblically speaking... This is what happens, right? Prophecy is going to end very shortly after the temple is rebuilt. There is no record of the ark ever on the map over there. There's even mention in chapter 2 of Ezra, it's not in the source sheets, but it's chapter 2, verse 63, that the Urim and Tumim are no longer available. There's no record of a fire coming from heaven. And there's certainly no record of God's cloud occupying the temple. You know, you're waiting for that climactic verse when they complete the second temple, but all they do is celebrate Pesach. Very nice, very happy, it's great. But there's no divine sign of approval in that. So with that stuff missing, something very, something is very different about the second temple. And that's what the Talmud is very sensitive to. So to them, they're crying about something much more important than size and value. But all the same, in the book of Ezra, you don't feel that at all. You feel, okay, it won't be as pretty, but it's going to be great and everybody's thrilled. But then come the bad guys in source number seven. When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Rubavel and the chiefs of the clans and said to them, Let us build with you, since we too worship your God, having offered sacrifices to him since the time of King Esarhaddon of Assyria, who brought us here. All right, so these people are the pre-runners, the forerunners of the people that we call the Samaritans. That's who these guys are. These guys are a, if you, if you check their DNA and put it under a microscope and get all the geneticists in, you will find Israelite DNA, meaning the northern kingdom of Israel that has long been exiled by the Assyrians. Well, they didn't exile 100% of the population of the Ten Lost Tribes. They exiled a lot of them. And they brought in a lot of pagans who they had exiled from other lands. That's what the Assyrians did, repopulation, where they would conquer your land and move out most of the population somewhere else and move in most of that population to you. So everybody got all mixed up. So these guys worship God. They worship our God, but they also worship whatever pagan deities are part of their family tradition also. That's what these guys do. So, and that, that again, that's the forerunners of the group called the Samaritans. Samaritans just means from Samaria. These are the people of the northern kingdom. These are the people who now live in the north. So they say, look, we've been serving your God since we got here. So verse 3, Zerubbabel, Yoshua, and the rest of the chiefs of the clans of Israel answered them, It is not for you and us to build a house to God, 
to our God, but we alone will build it to the Lord God of Israel in accord with the charge that the King King Cyrus of Persia laid upon us. In other words, um, you might worship our God, but as long as you're worshiping other ones, you're out of here. You're not, we don't want you to build with us. This temple is just to the God of Israel, and God's rules are no other gods in the picture. Right? You should know that Zerubbabel here and Yoshua do the right thing, of course. I fully agree with their with their move. But twice elsewhere in the book, not in our source sheets, it emphasizes that any of these people who abandoned their pagan deities were welcome to build and to be part of the process and to be part of the celebration. The rule was, Zerubbabel made it clear to these people, as long as you worship these other deities, you're not part of it. You're not part of our people. You get rid of them, join the clan. They were very clear and inclusive as long as people adopted the right rules. So over here, they say no, and the majority of them certainly are upset about that. Verse 4, Thereupon the people of the land undermined the resolve of the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They bribed ministers in order to thwart their plans all the years of King Cyrus of Persia and until the reign of King Darius of Persia. Disaster. Let's assume that this happened relatively quickly into the process. We don't know exactly the date of when this particular episode takes place. Cyrus is still king. So if they came in 538, let's assume by 537, 536 they're building. Then these guys show up and immediately intimidate the Jews and they stop. They don't resume building until 520 BCE with King Darius. I mean, there's a hiatus of some 16, 17 years, give or take. And the Jews are terrified. They know how vulnerable they are. They know that even if they are in the right, and even if they have royal permission to build, these enemies, have politi- they're politically connected. And if they get in with the right ministers, and that gets over to Cyrus, Cyrus can crush them. He won't just stop the project. He can come in with the army, and that'll be the end of the people of Israel. There's nothing. We are completely dependent on Persian goodwill, and we know it, and the enemies know it. And so consequently, the Jews just say, we can't, we can't risk this. The project stopped. They put down their hammers, they put down their nails, they got rid of the wood, and they got back to just trying to make a living. That's all they were doing at that moment. So time goes by until finally the year 520 rolls in, and source number 8 over here. Then the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem, inspired by the God of Israel. Two of the last three prophets of Israel. Thereupon Zerubbabel, son of Shaltiel, and Joshua, son of Yotzadak, began rebuilding the house of God in Jerusalem with the full support of the prophets of God. So here are the prophets. We went over Haggai and Zechariah back in the day, not too, too, too long ago. They're the ones who swung into action. Here they just sound like cheerleaders. They basically, their message you could summarize as, come on and do it already. But we read parts of Haggai and Zechariah and saw the nuances of their message, which boiled down to, come on, let's do it already. But there was a lot more to be said. Yeah, Sherry. Uh, Jeshua. Right, so again, the, the Hebrew name, the full Hebrew name is Yehoshua. He's often called Yeshua. But isn't that somewhat close to? Of course. So. But what was his Hebrew name? Hmm. I don't know if I don't I don't know if it was officially Yahushua, but it could have been. I don't. I don't. Yeah. We typically don't use that. We typically don't use that name in Hebrew when referring to. I don't think we call him Yahushua, but some people call him Yeshua. 
And so, so I, I don't know. But the, but Yeshua itself is a shortened form of Yehoshua. So it could very well be that it's the same name. And of course, what do you want? He was a nice Jewish boy. <laughs> so, but in the Hebrew, you also Yeshua is in Hebrew a shortened variant of Yehoshua. Well, anyway, Chagai and Zechariah win the day, and Zerubbabel and Yehoshua, being very faithful people, go ahead and build. It takes them four years or so, and in the year 516, they consecrate the second temple, they celebrate with Pesach. It's a very happy moment. And honestly, I would have been happy if Tanakh stopped right then. Because that's a good place to stop the show. You know that life goes on, you know that things won't always be that good, but at least these six chapters, the Jews were totally righteous, they're very responsive. Miracles of history are happening. The leaders are the right people to be leading them. The followers are great. There are prophets in their midst. They're building the temple. Their only problem in these six chapters is that because they were faithful, enemies gave us a hard time. But that's a good reason to have a hard time. If our problem is that Zerubbabel and Yeshua have integrity and say, we don't want pagans building the second temple, okay, good for them. If that's what's causing our problems, that's a very fine compliment to the Jewish people at that time. And that's what happens from 538 to 516. It's a very positive picture. Second temple comes about. Everything is good. Then we jump ahead 58 years later, where a lot of stuff has happened. Most importantly, Zerubbabel is out of the picture. And there's no descendant of Zerubbabel who has kingly something about him. There are some Davidic descendants floating around in Ezra's time, but they don't matter. They're not the leaders of the community. Nobody thinks that they're going to be the leaders. Everybody is resigned to Persian rule. They no longer are thinking, oh, this is the first step in a messianic process. They're thinking, oh, no, we're just we're slaves of Persia. There's nothing we could do. Ezra comes. He's actually sent by King Artaxerxes. The batting order, at least according to the conventional chronology of Persian empires, is Cyrus is the first. And there's Cambyses, who never appears in Tanakh. He has no Bible-worthy stories about him, but he was there. Then came Darius, the one who we just met. Then comes Xerxes, a.k.a. Achashverosh in the whole Purim story. And then comes Artaxerxes, or Artaxhasta in Hebrew. So Artaxerxes is now the king. He's the fifth king of the Persian Empire, at least according to conventional chronologies, even though he's the, only the fourth one who we meet, because we never met Cambyses. And Ezra comes, and Artaxerxes gives him a letter giving him authority, (coughs) excuse me, it's the weirdest thing in the world, to be the halachic authority for the Jewish people in Israel. So the logic is, Ezra was a great Torah scholar. He certainly was. He probably was the right person for this job. But it's quite strange that his authority is vested not in his goodness, not in his piety, not in his scholarship, not because the Jewish community accepted him. It's because he has a letter saying, anybody who doesn't listen to this guy is going to either be killed or his property is going to be confiscated or, tor- you know, don't mess with Artaxerxes. It's the strangest author- halakhic authority ever because it's coming from a pagan emperor who is not known to be nice. But at least he's supporting the right person. He's supporting Ezra. So it's a very sad moment. So Ezra comes as the halakhic authority. At one point, he says what the, what, the, what the people all know. In source number nine over here, you really get a sense of how the Jewish people perceive themselves, and I believe correctly. For bondsmen are, we are. Though even in our bondage, God has not forsaken us. It's like he's praying to God. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, look, God, you're still with us. But 
has disposed the king of Persia favorably toward us. He's grateful that Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, by and large, have been benign to the Jews. They're not nice people, but their policies happen to be good for the Jews. And so, okay, good. So he's grateful for that. To furnish us with sustenance and to raise us again the house of our God, repairing its ruins and giving us a hold in Judah and Jerusalem. So Ezra says, look, thank you, God, for all that you've done. We're very, very grateful. We're back in our homeland. We have a Beit HaMikdash. We have the temple standing again. We're sustained. But bondsmen we are. We're still slaves of the Persians, and we know it. In other words, we have no power, no abilities. We're being crippling taxes, and we're terrified out of our shadow because if we either do the wrong thing or if our enemies accuse us of doing the wrong thing, we could be in a heap of trouble, and we know it. We know how vulnerable we are. So that prayer is really a little window into the soul of the Jewish people at that time, that they really felt that they were slaves, and fundamentally, they were. Ezra's big achievement in the book of Ezra, which is just chapters 7 through 10, by the way, in in what we call Ezra, that's his zone, is that it turns out that there was a big intermarriage problem by now. Two generations after this very righteous generation, by now people are assimilating rapidly and there's a ton of intermarriage. And source number 10 picks that up. When this was over, the officers approached me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land whose abhorrent practices are like those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and the Amorites. They have taken their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed has become intermingled with the peoples of of the land. And it is the officers and prefects who have taken the lead in this trespass. It's not just marginal people in the society. Big shots are also intermarrying. When I heard this, I rent my garment and robe. I tore, this is Ezra talking in the first person. It's a first person account here. I tore hair out of my head and beard, and I sat desolate. Around me gathered all who were concerned over the words of God of Israel because of the returning exile's trespass, while I sat desolate until the evening offering. This is the big saga for Ezra, and it's the big saga for the Jewish people at this time. Most Jews remain in exile, and now we find out that even the Jews living in Israel, many of them are intermarrying. Yeah, Charlie? Several commentators raise your question. In other words, was he so clueless after living in, among the community for months? I don't, I don't think it was years yet, but, but even months. You would think that the first thing he would do is the Torah authority is get to know the people, talk to the leadership, find out what the pulse of the community is, do something, right? Either evidently, no, he's not doing that. Right, and he's much more in isolation, living in his office, not real, and talking to the people who are faithful. He doesn't realize that there's a whole society out there living a different, different he's life. Sitting in a could be That's what I'm saying. Right? Correct. Could, could be or it could be there's one commentator, Ral Bag, who believes that Ezra is doing this as a strategy. He doesn't think that Ezra is so clueless at all. He thinks he's quite with the program, and he thinks he's being strategic. Ezra has authority to force people to keep the Torah, but he doesn't like using that. He wants people to adopt the Torah because they actually believe in it and want to adopt it. And he feels that the use of force will not make people more faithful. So his philosophy is to sit back, wait for the people to initiate, there's a problem, Ezra. And then all Ezra does is he cries. He doesn't say, what? 
Here's my letter from Artaxerxes. Let me get these guys. You know, he doesn't do that. He cries, and what happens? People gather around him. And then just pick up in source number 11, Charlie, and you'll see. While Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very great crowd of Israelites gathered among him, about him. Men, women, children. The people were weeping bitterly. It worked. Right? And it was rather than using force or using his authority or even trying to tell people that they're doing the wrong thing, the standard prophetic way to go, he simply cries and prays. And before you know it, a big audience is gathered around. Then Shechaniah, son of Ichiel, of the family of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God by bringing into our homes foreign women from the peoples of the land. But there is still hope for Israel despite this. Now then, let us make a covenant with our God to expel all those women and all those who have been born to them in accordance with the bidding of the Lord and all who are concerned over the commandment of our God. Let the teaching be obeyed. The teaching is the Torah. Take action for the responsibility is yours and we are with you. Act with resolve. In other words, the people initiate the whole thing and then they tell Ezra, you be the the leader. But Ezra's form of leadership is waiting for the people to say, we know we're doing the wrong thing. Let's fix it. And Ezra, you be our leader and help us out. Then Ezra swings into action. So according to, going back to Charlie's question, Ralbag thinks that Ezra did this as a deliberate plan. Because this is the way that he is. He believes it's the best way to win souls over. Not by force, not by yelling at anybody, but simply by modeling the right thing, being heartbroken when sins are happening. This was a disaster for the community. And people responded. Everybody gathered around. Our saintly Ezra is crying. What's going on? Oh, this is what he's crying about. Oh my goodness, he's right. We really are doing the wrong thing. It's an amazing thing. The rest of chapter 10 is a list. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah loves lists. There's a list of 113 names of men who divorced their non-Jewish wives. So Malbim, the great 19th century commentator, says, you see from this list that Ezra batted a thousand. He and, and therefore, since it's 113 people, you realize that's a lot, but it's not as big as you thought. You thought the problem was much worse when you read the narrative, but it was only 113, and he solved that problem. But you said 119. Before. 113. The first time, and then you said 113. Thanks a lot. Uh, if I did, I was wrong when I said 119. I don't remember saying that. Okay, the answer is 113, regardless, okay? So... Rabbi Mordechai Zerkavod in the 20th century commentary called Dat Mikra, he disagrees. He says, no, 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 no. Ezra broke up only 113 out of many more intermarriages. That the problem was much bigger than this, just like what we thought originally. And so 113 committed to breaking it up. And of course, they don't tell you, oh, and 702 didn't, because that would be too much of a downer. So it feels complete. But you see right away from the book of Nehemiah, which is not a book, but from Nehemiah's account of the whole thing just 13 years later, the intermarriage is still going on at a very rapid clip. Ezra hardly cured the problem. But, on the, but at least it's portrayed in the most positive possible light. So that's what you see what's going on here. There's a new problem of intermarriage. I think we mentioned this when we did Malachi. Malachi is the last prophet from around this time period. He's the only prophet who ever condemns intermarriage. And it's not because earlier prophets thought it was okay. It's just that earlier prophets didn't see any. That wasn't their problem. They had other things to worry about, so they condemned those things. But intermarriage wasn't on their radar because it wasn't the problem that the people of Israel were doing. Malachi, living as a rough contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah, is, is addressing the, the new problem that has come about, namely widespread intermarriage. Yes, yeah, Susan? Um, didn't they encourage 
to convert? Why break up the family? Excellent question. This has a lot. It's a great historical question. Because there would be more Jews then. Sure. Nowadays we might, although I'm sure nowadays we would just fight about it also. <laughs> but 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 I agree with you. We would certainly make a case for let's not break up all of these families. Let's see if we can get the non-Jewish partners to sincerely adopt Judaism and keep everybody together. That didn't seem to be an option for Ezra. And so some people will say it's because halakha has different slants on how to deal with conversion. Some might say that Ezra saw this as an emergency measure. He didn't think that it was a good idea to, for that moment to take that road because then people would keep on intermarrying. He wanted to nip the problem in the bud. And by the way, those two policy decisions continue to be debated in one form or another to this very day. What's the best way to stop the problem of intermarriage given that it's a reality? And given that's a very big reality for a very big percentage of the population. So great rabbis on both sides, when this became a problem, started battling this out. One said, let's bring everybody in as much as we possibly can. And the other side said, let's not take any of them, hopefully as a deterrent for the next batch who will realize, okay, we're serious about that. And there's no one right answer. I mean, both of them have truth to them, obviously. So Ezra certainly took a very hard line. Yeah, Beverly. Excellent question. Answer is that the camera is simply not over there, so I don't know. In other words, there's no, there's no parallel. The fact that Esther marries Achashverosh is irrelevant to this discussion because obviously that was special circumstances, and we have no idea if that was the only intermarriage in the whole, in all of Persia, or if that was normal. Like, but that was special circumstances. But we simply do not know. We, sim- we simply do not know because there's no other biblical coverage of that moment. You know, are the people in Babylonia and Persia more righteous, or are they less righteous? All I know is that it's particularly depressing that the Israel community, who were, they, they were among the most faithful, the ones who came back. Now, two generations later, they're really falling apart. And so that's how the Ezra piece of what we call Ezra Nehemiah stops. And then we get to the book that in all of our printed Tanakhs, you see a book that's labeled Nehemiah. Again, tradition doesn't acknowledge that this is a separate book. It's part of the book of Ezra. Although nowadays I call it Ezra Nehemiah just to make it easier because we refer to Nehemiah in our printed text because we have chapter numbers. And I now I mean to say, in Nehemiah chapter 1, da, 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 and that only works if Nehemiah is some piece in the title. But formally, Nehemiah is not part of it. Nehemiah's biggest achievement was that he rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, finally. The temple is already standing since 516, but the walls remain shattered from the Babylonian invasion 150 years earlier. Babylonia is 586, that's when they destroyed. Nehemiah comes in 445 BCE. And I'm sure we've discussed this, whether in Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, or whether in Esther, not having a wall around your city means you're not a real city. And from their point of view, that was the most shameful, humiliating thing. I'm sure we talked about, let me just go for a little while, I'm sure we talked about it with the laws of Purim, that we had to make this bizarre ruling of, of when we keep Purim Shushan based on, you know, walled cities keep it on the 15th day like Shushan, but walled cities from what date? So the right answer should be from the story of Purim. That's, that makes sense, that walled cities would show solidarity with their sister city, Shushan, that also has a wall. But we don't rule that way because if we did, then Jerusalem would be ruled in Halakha not to be a city because Jerusalem's walls were still down then. So we have to make the rule that it's walled cities from the time of Joshua, Moshe's disciple, because then Jerusalem's walls were standing. That was a conscious decision to just ignore all of history in any rational, historical, chronological sense, because if you 
would follow it, then halacha would rule that Jerusalem is not a city. And we're just not going to do that. So we'll break historical rules that at least that way Jerusalem is a real city. And the way Nehemiah reports on it when he hears about the walls still in ruins in Source 12 at the beginning of his account, they replied, the survivors who have survived the captivity there in the province are in dire trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall is full of breaches and its gates have been destroyed with fire. It's considered a disgrace for the people of Israel. To, let me just go for a little while. The, it's a disgrace for the people that its gates are down and that the walls are breached. This, is, this means that it's simply not a walled city. It's not a real city. And that's a shame for the Jewish people that Jerusalem is not to be deemed a walled city. So Nehemiah says, that's it, I'm going on over there. So he goes, he moves from Shushan, where he had been the king's butler, by the way, which is a very high-ranking position. You know, to talk about one of the most trusted officials in the kingdom, that's, that's your guy, right? Because after all... You, make sure, you have to know that he's never going to poison you, among other things. And he's also overhearing all of your conversations with every major diplomat. Uh, he, he is the wiretap. So you've got to trust your butler blind. So Artaxerxes trusted Nehemiah blind. Now Nehemiah petitions the king, can I please go to Israel? I've got to build that wall. I've got I to do something here. This is a shame for our people. So Artaxerxes let, lets him go, and Nehemiah goes. And of course, those enemies are just waiting for that moment and they start saying, oh, you're coming to rebel against the king. You're building this wall so you can revolt. Now, thank God, uh, you know, I don't know what what was in anybody's mind at that time because I don't know what is in anybody's mind today with people that I know. So I don't know what's in their minds either, but there's no mention ever in all of the Second Temple books that the Jews were plotting any form of revolt against the Persian Empire. If nothing else, it was prudent. If they would have revolted, unless God seriously brought in some miraculous firepower, that would have been the end. There's no way we could have withstood a Persian attack, barring serious miraculous intervention. And God doesn't seem to be so present as we were already talking. The people were not going to take that gamble. But there's no trace of rebellious approach. Nehemiah is not planning on rebelling. Zerubbabel had no intentions of becoming the king, so far as we know. And so Nehemiah goes there to build the walls. He just wants to build the walls because Jerusalem is ashamed of itself. And the people of Israel are ashamed of, of themselves by not having a walled city. So it was a Jewish pride thing. And he went ahead and got right to work and the enemy swung into action. So Nehemiah invented what I picture as the first yeshivat hezder, a hezder yeshiva, where he made a rule. He realized we have to do something. The work has to go on. But we also, these enemies are going to give us a lot of problems. So the rule was it shifts. Or some had to hold weapons and do shmirah. They actually had to guard the builders from enemy attacks. And the rest of them built, and then they switched off. And everybody was involved. Even the high priest got out of the temple, and he helped build walls. And the high priest has stuff to do. He would have a fine excuse not to go and build these walls. But everybody was there. Nehemiah made sure that there were shifts, made sure that everything got along, and his major achievement was was getting the wall up, and of course the people were very, very, very happy. His other achievement, which was dep- so depressing, is that once he finally got the walls up, he realized, oh, but nobody lives here. So it's still not a real city. Nobody lives, nobody lives here. Jerusalem was desolate. So he said, look, dear all you Jewish people who live somewhere outside of Jerusalem, 10% of you are going to move there. Now, I'm asking for volunteers. So if you volunteer, great. You get front row seats, the best real estate in town. If, you, if there's not enough of 10%, we're going to have a lottery. And I'm going to make all the rest, of, to, to get that 10%, I'm going to make you go. 
And so some people volunteered, and then they did a lottery, and he got 10% of the Jewish population to move to Jerusalem, because otherwise, it's not a city at all. Who cares if there is a wall? It's empty. It was a ghost town. So he turned it into a viable city. So that's what he does in chapter 11 of that book. The most exciting part of the book, most of it is about the walls and rebuilding the city, are chapters 8 through 10. Chapters 8 through 10 in the book talk about how, once again, Ezra doing his thing, going back to the Charlie discussion from before, the people come to Ezra and say, can you please teach us Torah? Ezra doesn't say, okay, everybody, Torah time, you better come to my lectures. No, 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 can you please teach us Torah? Well, that makes Ezra's day. So I say, okay, get everybody together. So Ezra gets up, they build him a wooden stage. They bring a Torah, and Ezra, being who he is, surrounds himself with other Kohanim and Levim, other teachers. Ezra represents, it's a, it's a new model of leadership, by the way, where it's not all about him. He realized only too well that he can't live forever, just like nobody else is going to live forever. And if he becomes the supreme teacher but doesn't train the next generation... Well, then he'll die one day, and that'll be it. Then they're back in their dark age. So he makes sure everywhere that he goes that he's surrounding himself with the next generation of teachers, of leaders. He wants to make sure that this is going to perpetuate itself. He essentially becomes, in rabbinic tradition, the world's first rabbi. He's not a prophet. He's a Torah scholar. He's a pious man. And his job is to educate the public, but also to train the next generation of educators. That's how he leads. He's not leading by authority. He's not leading by prophecy. He's leading as a Torah scholar, but he very deliberately wants new generations of people to rise. So he becomes traditionally known as the first, I, mean, I don't know if the sages call him quite that, but that's what, that's what they refer to him basically as. He becomes the world's first rabbi in the way that, the prototype that we understand it today. So Ezra goes and publicly reads the Torah. Everybody cries. They affirm to accept the Torah. That they celebrate in a very happy way. In fact, when some people start to cry, Ezra and Nehemiah, who are both there, it's the only time that they're both on the set at the same time during during this narrative. They, they tell people we should be happy about this. It's very, very exciting. And then they actually do what you might do with the first grader sometimes. If this was a great national moment, where they pull out a piece of paper, or what ancient people might have used, a scroll, and they get people to sign their name on the scroll, like, I promise to keep the Torah. They sign a contract. And there's just a list of names in the book of Nehemiah describing this contract and the the names that are on it, a whole list of names. These are the people who signed it. Nehemiah gets to go first. He's the governor. But then a whole lot of other people as well. Miriam? Oh, you're stretching. Okay. (laughs) My job is to notice, and then your job is to tell me whether you're really raising your hand or not. Yeah, Beverly? He's the political leader. I can't tell you that he's not a scholar. He's very pious. But he's not coming in as the Torah sage. In other words, they're the tag team of leadership where Nehemiah occupies what Zerubbabel's post used to be. He's the governor of the community. So he's, the polit- he's the political figure. Ezra is the sage. He's, he's really the... He's not, but what's interesting about him, I didn't mention this before, he is a Kohen, but his Kohenness is irrelevant. He's not... I mean, he might have served in the temple in his spare time. I don't know. He could have. But the fact that he is a Kohen is irrelevant to his job description here. He's functioning as a Kohen who teaches rather than the Kohen who serves in the Beit HaMikdash. So he doesn't replace Yehoshua, who is the high priest figure in the earlier, in the earlier generation. So after this great celebratory moment where the people accept the Torah, they sign their names on a piece of paper to say that they promise to keep the Torah, there's then again a massive list of names Combining the combining the generations, and honestly, here's another place where if you had to make me do it, I would stop Tanakh here now. 
Okay, you didn't stop it at the second temple. But now we have a national acceptance of the Torah. People are affirming that they're going to do the right thing. Public Torah reading, Ezra and Nehemiah are there. People are signing their name. The end, good climactic ending. So good. So I have two good places where you could end Tanakh. And we chose to end on neither of them. It's too bad. Because then we have chapter 13, the very last chronological verse chapter in all of Tanakh. Source number 13 over here. Oh my God, remember me favorably for this. This is Nehemiah speaking. And do not blot out the devotion I showed toward the house of my God and its attendants. Nehemiah pats himself on the back for his achievements. Then he says, I gave orders to the Levites to purify themselves and come and guard the gates to preserve the sanctity of the Sabbath, meaning people were violating Shabbat. So he got swung into action to stop this. This too, oh my God, remember to my credit and spare me in accord with your abundant faithfulness. Not only that, but they were intermarriage again. I purged them of every foreign element and arranged for the priests and Levites to work each at his task by shifts and for the wood offering to be brought at fixed times and for, for the first fruits. Oh my God, remember it to my credit. Those are the last words in the entire book. So Nehemiah, when he speaks about his situation, it's very different from the way the narrator speaks about it, right? The narrator described a very happy ending, and I wish we would have stopped then. Instead, Nehemiah shows up in chapter 13, speaking in the first person, saying, these people are rotten, they're violating Shabbat, they're cheating on their tithes, they're intermarrying, and I showed him who's boss. I said, we have to be faithful to the Torah. He's fighting for a good cause, but he's very tough, and he gives himself a ton of credit for all of this. Now, so much so that it goes back to what Beverly was asking at the very beginning, and which I would have otherwise deferred to here. Now we get to that. The sages ask the question from the reverse angle. The sages know that this is the book of Ezra, the whole thing. What we call Ezra and Nehemiah, that's the book of Ezra in tradition. But they're wondering, well, wait a minute. The Nehemiah zone sounds like a different book. It sounds like it's written by Nehemiah. He's speaking in his first person. It, it, it begins with a new beginning. So the Talmud asked the question in source 14. The whole subject matter of the book of Ezra was narrated by Nehemiah, son of Chachaliah. Why then was the book not called by his name? Why don't we call this book of Nehemiah also? Rabbi Yirmiyah ben Abba said, because he claimed merit for himself. As it is written, oh my God, remember to my, to remember to my credit. So one answer given is, he's patting himself on the back too much. And they just didn't want to name a biblical book after that. He's not a bad person. He's a great person. He was fighting for the good cause, he had incredible achievements, he built Jerusalem, he fought for the Torah. His heart was all in the right place, but the sages are very put off by this taking credit for himself. It's just so weird. And so they said, that's it. You want to pat yourself on the back? You just erased your name from the, from the title page. Right? Now it's just going to be called the Book of Ezra. Rabbi Yosef said, because he spoke disparagingly of his predecessors. As it is written, it's not in, we didn't do chapter 5, but in chapter 5 it says, the former governors who preceded me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine, more than 40 shekels of silver, etc. Meaning my predecessors, meaning the Jewish governors, they were lousy, they abused the people, but I am so benign and good, he goes on to say. He's, again, patting himself on the back, not only by achieving stuff, but specifically by putting down earlier Jewish leaders of this community. So the Talmud is very put off by all of these things. And so they say, that's it. Your name is erased from the title page. It's hereby going to be known as the book of Ezra. In contrast, what the sages have to say about Ezra is many good things, but my favorite one is source number 15. Rabbi Yosei said, had Moses not preceded him, 
Ezra would have been worthy of receiving the Torah for Israel. Okay, you really can't get a better Talmudic compliment than that one. And it's even more remarkable that Ezra is not a prophet at all. It's not that, oh, he's a great prophet, but, even great enough to receive the Torah, but Moses already got it. No, he's not a prophet, period, so far as we know. I mean, he's not cast as a prophet. And this, by the way, is the sages giving praise. They specifically use Ezra rather than, say, Isaiah or Elijah or Samuel or other great prophetic figures. Because to them, Ezra is the foundation of a new order in Judaism. Up until now, it's been pure revelation. Revelation has been the heart of our interaction with God. Ezra is the first person who's taking teachings, traditions, and texts as a scholar, and he's leading the Jewish people without prophetic leadership. In other words, he is initiating a new form of Torah leadership. He's the first rabbi. And so the sages look to him as the second Moses. He's the one who brought a non-prophetic Judaism to the people. After Moses brought a prophetic one. Okay, Shari? Now, uh, going back to uh, 12, I find that he was cool about the city of Timothy because what he says is either very pressing because it becomes a metaphor of what was happening with the people. You see Jerusalem as representing the people of Israel. Okay. Their walls are broken. They're intermarrying. So it's like it, it has a kind of double imagery. Very nice. There, nice poetic touch. Striking. Good. So the Tanakh ends on this bleak note of chapter 13 of Nehemiah that the Mashiach hasn't come. Right? Now, the second temple might be standing, the Jerusalem is standing, the people just accepted the Torah, but people are now breaking Shabbat, they're intermarrying, violating other laws of the Torah, and now it's just an open-ended disaster. So part of that statement is correct. Part of that statement is that Tanakh really, sorry to say, needs to end on this bleak note because Mashiach didn't come then. It was this close to being a full-blown redemption at that period. Right? So many miracles are happening. Jeremiah's prophecies are being fulfilled, but the people weren't ready to take that final step toward redemption, and now we're in the unredeemed world that we live in. Right? So part of it is the Tanakh should have actually ended with Nehemiah chapter 13 to give you that bleak sense of it, we didn't get redemption. Just like the book of Esther ends, not with the victory and the holiday, but with Ahasuerus still rules the world. It's a good way to remind us it's not a complete victory. So Nehemiah kind of does that also. But Tanakh, the compilers of Tanakh wouldn't tolerate that sentence, even if it's true, because we're just too hopeful of a people. Like, we've gotten by for thousands of years because we always put hope at the end. And that's why we flip-flopped and put Ezra and Nehemiah before Chronicles, so that way Chronicles ends. The last two verses of Chronicles are the first two verses of Ezra, that after the destruction of the temple, God inspired Cyrus the Great, who said... You know, following Prophet Jeremiah, go and rebuild. The God of the gods of heaven, God of heaven and of heaven, has told me, inspired me to rebuild. It's simply the last two verses in the printed Bibles are the are what source number three is verbatim, or you know, minor variants, but 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 verbatim. So that's the way of keeping our sense of of hope. The Second Temple period was two things all rolled into one, and that's what we saw tonight. One is that it was basically the redemption that the prophets had foreseen. The second temple was built, it's a miracle, it's amazing, and simultaneously, this, this is not Mashiach, this is not the Messianic era, right? We remain totally at the mercy of the Persian Empire, all we have are governors. The biggest problem is that the Ark, the Urim Vitumim, God's presence and prophecy itself comes to an end. Obviously, something very, very wrong happened at this period. The bright side is, which the sages never stop talking about, is that 
Ezra saved the day. Ezra reminded us that Torah is eternal even beyond an age of prophecy. Even when there is no revelation at all, now we can take that revelation and live it. And that's what Ezra was the first one to do it, and he set up the mechanics for training disciples so we would be able to do it. So in many ways, he really was the second Moshe, not by virtue of prophecy, but by virtue of saying, here's the new foundation of what our religious order is going to look like for the next 2,500 years or so and counting. And so are the books of, well, really the book of Ezra, which I call the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, which some people mistakenly call two books, Ezra and Nehemiah. Remarkable books indeed, though, I think. And that brings us to the fact that we have one more week of the forward-going survey, and that is the book of Devere Hayamim, or Chronicles, that we will do, God willing, this coming Wednesday. And so I look forward to doing that with you. And I'll send out an email just to remind the, the have a wonderful week, and I look forward to seeing you next week.